Hello, my name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 143, 1 and 2. Listen to my prayer, Lord. Because of your faithfulness, hear my request for mercy. Because of your righteousness, answer me. Please don't bring your servant to judgment, because no living thing is righteous before you. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians 2, 19 through 21. I died to the law through the law so that I could live for Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith, indeed, the faithfulness of God's Son who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't ignore the grace of God, because if we become righteous through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Tracy. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading. It's going to be found in John 15, 3 through 5. You are already trimmed because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. And I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, You can't do anything. The gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God who speaks. Would you speak to us this morning through your word and by your spirit? And when you speak, you create life. And so in speaking to us, would you cause your life to burst forth inside of us? You create your life in us. Would you heal us? Would you help us? Would you set us free? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you, everyone. Thanks for being here on Labor Day weekend. You may have noticed that we had two scripture readers today. Uh, For those of you who've been a part of New Life Downtown for a long time, you know that we normally have three. One person read the Old Testament, New Testament, another person read the gospel. We went to one reader during the pandemic, so we're slowly kind of inching our way back to three readers. So if you're like, I want to read, I can read, that would be fun. Please talk to Pastor Ken afterwards as we continue to build up that team. Uh, And this is our fifth week here as New Life Downtown, not at Downtown. Um, Thank you for continuing to travel with us in all of the places that we go. We are here for at least three more weeks. Uh, Palmer High School has not given us a definitive return date yet. Uh, We're hoping that it's going to be October 3rd, uh, but we don't know for sure yet. As I've said a couple times, like we're just waiting for them to give us the go-ahead because they're finishing some repairs in the auditorium that make it not able to be used until they're done. Now, I have to apologize to you because I think maybe like the first or second time that I shared this news, I slipped and said the word like renovation or remodel. And I, f- I fear that I've set expectations 
but it will not be met. <laughs> and so in order to clarify expectations, repairs think more like I'm patching a hole in the wall rather than I'm putting in new paint and new carpet and new chairs. There will be no new chairs at Palmer. They will squeak like they have never squeaked before uh, when we return. Uh, for some of you, that will be your first experience of uh, New Life Downtown at Palmer, and you'll think, man, we were really spoiled for the last uh, year and a half being in other places. Uh, it's not nice, uh, but it's home, and so <laughs> we are hoping to go back there. Uh, I, when I was uh, growing up in a small town in northern Iowa, I went to public school my whole life. Sarah went to Christian school most of her life or homeschool for part of it, but I went to public school, and public schools are interesting places, and our high school was a place that did a really good job at uh, creating certain stratification amongst classes. Uh, it was like one of the things that the school did really well. It was very clear who were freshmen and who were sophomores and who were juniors and who were seniors. There were formal ways that they kind of divided us into groups. The freshmen and sophomores used one hallway with freshmen at one end, sophomores at the other. We didn't want any fraternizing between those groups. And then in the other hallway were the juniors and the seniors, or even the locker rooms. So this is the varsity locker room and this is the junior varsity locker room. But then there were other ways that the students themselves sort of reinforced these kind of stratifications. In the lunchroom, the teachers all sat, imagine this is my high school lunchroom, only you know, bigger, um, and all the teachers would sit up here at the very front. And so guess who had to sit in these chairs, these tables right next to the teachers? The freshmen! And then it was the sophomores, then the juniors, and then the seniors got to be the furthest away from any authority possible in the room. And you didn't at any point in time ever cross those boundaries unless you were dating somebody. Then you could cross that boundary and eat with somebody. But the older student always had to go to the younger student's place. If you were dating a sophomore, oh, that sophomore better not come and sit with the seniors you senior who's dating a sophomore, you better go sit over there. And they had all these ways of reinforcing it. But even within that, within the seniors, there were groups that would always sit together based on different activities or different interests or different friendship groups. And so if you knew how the rules worked, you could come inside the school and based on where someone was sitting during lunch, you could tell something about their community and their identity about who they are and who they belong to. You could see something about the way that the high school was set up that said something about community and identity. And I think the high school lunchroom is a good example or a good analogy for what's going on in the book of Galatians. That in the book of Galatians, we actually have a system that was set up for you eat with these people and you eat with these people. And then Jesus came in and said, no, 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 those things are not happening anymore. And then somebody else came in and said, no, 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 we need to go back to the way that it was. We're in our, first, our fourth week in this series through Paul's letter to the Galatians, a series that we're calling the revolutionary gospel because what we're trying to see in the midst of Paul's letter is the sweeping impact of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the sweeping impact of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection on the here and now, not just in the afterlife. 
that Paul is dealing with life now, life on the ground, and trying to demonstrate how that life has been dramatically reshaped by all that Jesus has done. And what we're going to do today is we're going to take a really close look at the end of Galatians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, you can go there. But first, we need to relay some tracks that we've already laid over the last couple of weeks because it's really important to continue to remember what the context is that we're looking at as we're looking at a book like this. It helps us to understand some of the more difficult passages. And the end of Galatians 2 is one of those passages that a lot of people have memorized. There's something about it that draws to us. But then there's other parts where like, yeah, I don't know what Paul's saying there. That's a little bit confusing. Uh, Peter, even at one point in a letter, said, as Paul does in all of his letters, he says things that I find hard to understand. Um, so we'll try to understand Paul a little bit if we can today. But it's helpful to know in the first century Jewish world, the world divided neatly into two groups of people. There were the righteous Jews, and then there were Gentile sinners, You were in one of two groups. You were either a righteous Jew or you were a Gentile sinner. There were even uh, writings that happened between the Old and the New Testament that used these words, righteous and sinners, almost as shorthand group labels. Righteous is a way of referring to Jews, those who are part of the people of God. And sinner is a way of referring to Gentiles, those who are not part of the people of God. It could be shorthand. It wasn't the only way that those words were used, but it is a way those words were used. It's kind of like separating out the jets and the sharks. You know, pure bloods and mud bloods and muggles. You know, it's like quick hand of describing something, native Coloradans and Texans. It's like our way of describing the two people that live here. It's just those kind of shorthand ways of dividing people up into groups. And so these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, were distinguished, of course, by their ethnicity. Right? That's a part of this. But they were also distinguished by their practices, by the way in which they lived life. And the things that distinguished particularly those who were Jewish were four, three or four constellation of practices that clearly were, this is what it means to be a part of this group. If you're a part of this group, then you keep Sabbath. It's what you do. You don't work on Saturday. You circumcise your male children. That's another definitive marker. And then you don't eat certain foods and you don't eat with certain people. This was a huge way of sort of identifying who you are. You don't eat in that part of the lunchroom, and you certainly don't get the sloppy joes when they're available because we don't know what's in them. Let's be honest. Like, nobody really knows. So there are certain things, the practices that reinforced community and identity. Paul refers to these things as the works of the law. That in the book of Galatians, when he's referring to these things, he uses a shorthand phrase, the works of the law. It's his way of saying, these are the practices that have distinguished you as the people of God. And so what happens in the first century, of course, is Jesus comes. And into this neatly ordered world, Jesus says, no, (laughs) this is no longer the way things are. That because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a third group emerges in the middle of this. You can imagine like a third party emerging into U.S. politics, like Ross Perot with only a whole lot more hope, right? There's something that's fundamentally changed in the landscape of things. And now this third group emerges that consists of both Jews 
and Gentiles who believe that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and who believe that he's fulfilled that long-standing promise that God made to Abraham, that through Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that in Jesus, the doors to God's people would be opened up to the Gentiles. And so this group of people emerges and says, you know what, God's done it, that in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are now brought together as a singular family of God. But now we have a problem. We have a neatly ordered world, a way of distinguishing you're in, you're out, you do this, you don't do this. And now there's this third group that's mixed from those two groups. What do we do? How do we do this? How is that group? How are Christians going to be identified and distinguished? What practices are going to embody their community and reinforce their identity? How's this going to work? And what Paul and those who come before him have said to the churches is that the works of the law, those old ways of sort of dividing yourselves up, those are not the ways we're going to divide ourselves up anymore. In fact, one of the things that's going to distinguish the church is that Jews and Gentiles are going to eat together, and they're going to eat the same foods. We're upsetting the whole lunchroom. And then there's a group of people that comes by and says, no, 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 we can't do it that way. We need to go back to the old way of doing things. There's a group of people that come up from Jerusalem, and they begin to tell the Galatian churches that here's what's going to happen. What needs to happen is that Gentiles need to become Jews. Then they can be Christians. So they need to stop eating what they've been eating. They need to stop eating with people that are not believers in Christ. They need to be circumcised, and they need to start keeping Sabbath. And that only when they do those things, then they can be a part of that group. They're insisting that it has to go back to this way. Can you imagine just for a second what it must have been like to be a Gentile Christian at that point in time? Like the rules keep changing. Wait, I can sit here? Wait, I can sit there? I can eat this? I can't eat that? What are you trying to tell me? I just want to follow Jesus. What am I supposed to be doing? It's like playing, go- playing croquet with my grandfather. The rules changed every time we played. I still to this day, I don't know what the rules are to croquet. Because every time we played, it was different. And I think he was, in try- he was trying to bend the rules in such a way that he would win, and he wouldn't. <laughs> so we just refer collectively in our family, like there's croquet, are we playing by the real rules or McCourt's rules? Like, whose rules are winning here? And this group is just unpredictable. And we're going to keep going back and forth. But Paul is saying, no, 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 that is not the case. Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to become Christians. That God is doing a new thing in Jesus. That he's actually shifted things. And this is the backdrop behind what we're reading then. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, if you want to follow along from there. And you can catch this language then in Paul. He says this, We, he's speaking on his behalf to the Jewish Christians in the churches of Galatia. We were born Jew not Gentile sinners. There's that dual world view. He's saying, I get it. We were born here, not here. However, we now know 
because of Jesus Christ, then a person isn't made righteous or declared righteous by the works of the law. Someone does not become a part of the people of God. People not become a part of the family of God by those works of the law, by Sabbath keeping and circumcision and dietary laws and who you, what you eat. And no, 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 no. That's not how you become a part of the people of God. That's not how you are made righteous. But rather, we become part of the people of God through what? Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus coming and fulfilling all the things that we needed to be fulfilled, all of the covenant promises and hopes. We ourselves then believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be made righteous, may be part of the family of God by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law. Because no one will be actually made righteous by those things. Paul here is echoing that Old Testament reading. There is no living thing that's righteous in Psalm 1. 43. I want you to note or underline if you're following along in your Bible this phrase, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to that in just a second. We're going to say more about faith next week. Pastor Glenn will be back. We're going to talk about faith and faithfulness and the relationship between those next week. But for now, pay attention to that phrase, in Christ Jesus. He goes on, he says, but if it is discovered that we ourselves are sinners, not a part of the people of God, while trying to be made righteous in Christ, trying to become part of the people of God in Christ, then Christ is a servant of sin? In other words, saying, wait a second, we, we have been living in such a way that we are now eating different things and we're eating with different people because we believe that the people of God have been reconstituted around Jesus. And now you're telling us that if we do that, we've become sinners. Does that mean that Jesus is making us sinners rather than Jesus, Jesus making us part of the people of God? He's like, no, you've lost your minds. That is not what Jesus has come to do. Absolutely not. If I rebuild the very things that I tore down, then I show myself that I am breaking the law. So the accusation that's being made by these leaders that have come up from Jerusalem is that if you eat with and you eat like Gentiles, then you have become sinners. And you've become sinners because of your affiliation with Jesus. Paul's like, no, 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 that is not how this works. And then he goes on and he actually like throws down a trump card for them. He says, listen, guys, stop pretending. You've already been doing this. You've already been eating with and you've already been eating like Gentiles. You've already been telling people they didn't need to be circumcised. So if you go back and start saying, oh, no, 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 we were wrong. We're sorry. We need to go back this way. You start redrawing those lines and rebuilding those walls. Then you're just admitting your own guilt. You're just showing that you're not only a sinner, you're a lawbreaker. You have transgressed the Torah. You have actually broken the very thing that you are now trying to uphold. Imagine again for a second, what it must have been like to be a Gentile Christian at this time. And your relationship with your Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, it's got to feel like a really unhealthy like dating relationship. It's like, well, when these people are around, you'll eat with me. But when those people are around, you'll pretend like I don't exist. It's like you're hot and then you're cold and you're like, oh, what is this? This is constantly feeling going back and forth. 
But note again the phrase that he mentions right in the middle of this. He uses again the phrase in Christ. For Paul, this may be the most important phrase that he uses in all of his letters. For him, the phrase in Christ is what has captured his imagination. It's where he does his theological thinking from, is from this, pra- from this phrase. And in these verses, he says, Christians are those who believe, who put their faith or their trust in Christ. That this is who we have placed our trust, our hope, our faith in Christ. Why? So that we may be made righteous, so that we may become part of the people of God in Christ. But the people of God are in Christ, and so I'm putting my faith in Christ so that I can become part of the people of God. So throughout the New Testament, faith in Christ now defines who the people of God are. It's no longer defined by Sabbath-keeping and circumcision and dietary laws. It's now defined by, boundaried by, held together by, defined by those who have faith in Christ. So those who have faith in Christ all belong to God. But correspondingly, they also all belong to each other. They've become a part of a new family If you're in Christ and they are in Christ, then you are together. This is actually why Paul's so upset. Have you noticed how cranky Paul is in this letter? It's like he's been fasting for 40 days or something. Like he's just, he needs to eat and then maybe take a nap and then rewrite the letter because he's upset. But the reason he's so upset is because these leaders from Jerusalem who are coming back with these teachings are actually threatening the unity of the new community. But this is why he is so upset, is that what is happening is actually breaking apart what Jesus has brought together. He's so upset because he's deeply concerned about church unity. And so what he does is he comes into the churches in Galatia through this letter and he tells them, Stop it. (laughs) Stay at the table. Keep eating with one another. Don't go back to the old ways of organizing your lunchroom. Eat together. Stay together. Why is that so important to him? I think it's for a couple reasons. But first, I think the basic thing he's trying to say is this, is that Jesus' people are now your people. Your people are no longer these two groups. Your people is Jesus' people. And so look around the room real quick. These are your people. This is your family. This is your community. That those who are in Christ belong to God and belong to one another. See, Jesus came not just to save our souls. That was part of it. But Jesus also came to set us in a new family. He came to found a new community to start a new collective that's defined by our incorporation into Messiah Jesus, that we are in Christ and we are in Christ together. And so our fellowship with the people around us is actually a significant part of the gospel because we've been brought together with him. It's not only a significant part of the gospel, it is a significant part of our public witness to the world. That what Paul's so upset about is the threat of the church's unity is also a threat against the church's mission. It's like, oh, wait a minute. If you go back 
to this old way of living, this old way of thinking, this old way of dividing, you're actually breaking apart what Christ is meant to bring together, and you're moving against the mission of the gospel. It was true in Paul's time, and it's certainly true in ours. We live in an increasingly, increasingly divided world. We are looking for every possible reason we can to divide and subdivide and subdivide and subdivide and subdivide from that and to create smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller tables, kind of isolated from one another. And it's not just happening outside the church. It's happening inside the church. And so the gathered community, the united community is actually a public witness to the world that something else is going on. This is actually one of the reasons why corporate gatherings like this matter. Coming together in public when it's possible. Because what we are doing right now, what we're doing right now, being in the same room together, doing the same things together, what's going to happen during the week in your meal groups as you come together in those places, those kinds of gatherings are profoundly gospel acts. They are profoundly gospel acts. There are moments that we set aside our sociocultural boundaries, the things that would divide us, that we forego our preferences, that we share our resources, that we sacrifice our time and convenience. Why? To welcome and to serve and to pray and to forgive and to eat with people that we have no other business being with other than the fact that we've made family in Christ. Why else would we all be together? Like if, you, if we try to divide us all up and find something common, it's just Jesus. Everything else we could find all kinds of differences about. Some that we'd be shocked by. <sighs> right? But in Jesus we find commonality. We have these kind of gatherings because what we have in common in Christ matters more than any differences we have outside of him. What we have in common in Christ matters more than any differences we have outside of him. So we gather as a profoundly gospel act. We can also say that the reverse is actually true. To break fellowship, to build walls, runs contrary to the gospel. To break fellowship and build walls around groups that have nothing to do with Jesus is to run contrary to the gospel. Are there times that we have to break fellowship? Are there times that we have to leave communities? Are there times that those things happen? Certainly, there are times that ha- that happens. Sometimes it's life circumstances. It's really hard to be a part of New Life downtown when you're living in Plano, right? You got to find a church in Plano, right? There are some times that you're like, we've got a two-month-old and that 30-minute drive downtown is killing us. We need to find a church that's a little bit, yes, okay, great, like, Find the local community plug-in. There's times that there's an opportunity or a calling to go someplace else and get a part of something. Like, I have a real passion for this and they're doing this over here and there's an opportunity for me to, to love these folks and to use my gifts and those things. And I feel like God's saying, hey, go over here. Yes, go. And there are times that we have to leave because there's toxic culture. There's things that are like, that's just not healthy. That's not good for me to sort of be in that place. But if the reason that we are leaving is to reinforce divisions that have nothing to do with Jesus, if the reason we're doing is to avoid differences, to avoid difficult conversations, to avoid dealing with disappointment, then those decisions 
are not gospel decisions. Right? I had a, co- a coffee earlier this week with uh, a congregant. It was one of those moments where I was like, what he is doing right now is a profoundly gospel act. He said, hey, can we get some coffee, ask some questions? I don't know if you know that in the last year and a half has been a hard year and a half. Uh, and there's been lots of decisions made by lots of people, uh, some that we like, some that we don't like, some that we agree with, some that we disagree with. And I don't know if you know that that's happened in church too. Like we've had to make all kinds of decisions, some that were decisions in our control, some that were not in our control, all kinds of decisions that had to be made, difficult decisions that were just like, okay, what are we going to do in the midst of this? And for some people, they're like, oh, totally, that's the decision I would have made. And other people are like, I don't know if I would have made that decision, right? It's happened and it's going to continue to happen. And so he's like, he he found himself feeling, I'm just... I, don't, I need to know who's making decisions, how decisions are being made, who's weighing in on decisions, how are we listening to things. Just help me understand the process. It's like, I, I don't like some of the decisions. I disagree with some of them, but I just want to know, like, how? Like, what, what's going on? So we sat down, we had coffee for a little over an hour, and he just asked a ton of questions about elders and overseers and, like, pastoral meetings and, and consultants and, like, who are, we, who are you talking to and how are those decisions being made? And we got all the way into the conversation, and he, and he thanked me, and I said, hey, just what, what kind of motivated all of this for you? He's like, I just don't want to leave my family over something that doesn't matter that much. It's like, I'd rather ask questions and lean into conversations and try to understand and even say like, yeah, I, I can disagree and still say that our unity in Christ is more important than any of these other things. It's like, that was a profoundly gospel act that he took. And what a grace to give me to be in that position and have that conversation with him. That's what Paul's kind of getting at. He's like, don't break up fellowship over those kinds of things. Stay at the table. He goes on and then he kind of makes this really interesting turn in Galatians 2.19. And it, it feels a bit like, wait a minute, Paul, where are you going? But I think it makes sense the closer we look at it. He says this, he says, this is probably the most popular passage in Galatians. I died the law through the law so that I could live for God. For I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith by the faithfulness of God's Son who loved me and gave himself up for me. We're going to talk more about this whole law thing in two weeks. But I want to focus in really quickly here on death, on the goal of his death. He talks about being crucified with Christ, and he talks about being dying to the law. Why? You notice what he says, I died to the law so that I could live for God. Again, notice where his focus is. He doesn't say I died to the law so that I could go to heaven. He said that I died to the law so that I could live for God here and now. He's wanting to figure out what is the gospel impact of my everyday life? What does that look like? How do we live for God now? What is that kind of, how does that play out? And notice what he says here in the previous section. He said that the community of God's people is located in Christ. Do you remember underlying that? Those who believe in Christ are in Christ But now Paul makes this subtle shift. And now he's not talking about in Christ. He's now talking about Christ in me. I've been crucified with Christ and now Christ lives 
in me. What Paul's saying is the very life of God, the very spirit of Christ, what he'll describe as the Holy Spirit in the very next chapter, is now located in us. If our residence in Christ determines our community, then what Paul is saying is that Christ's residence in us determines our identity. If our residence in Christ determines our community, then Paul correspondingly says, and Christ's residence in us determines our identity. He says we have died with Christ, and by implication we've been raised with Christ, so that Jesus' story is now our story, and that what is true of Jesus is actually now true of us. That the person who you once were before Christ is not the person that you are now, but instead Jesus' life is now your life. Jesus' people are your people, and Jesus' life is now your life. What Paul is saying is, friends, the most important thing about us, what defines us, is Christ in us. And that is the most important thing. In our culture, we're having a lot of conversations about identity, about how we identify ourselves, about what determines who we are and consequentially how we live. That search for authenticity that's going on in our culture is this desire that we want to live congruent with who we are, that we want our external life to reflect our internal life. We're trying to discover our identity internally so that we can live it out externally. And what Paul says to us is that for Christians, Christ in us is what determines our identity. And so for us, authenticity is about becoming more like Christ. That Christ in us determines who we are, and authenticity is about becoming more like Christ. Why is Paul bringing up that in the middle of this conversation about who we eat with? I think what Paul realizes is that underneath all of this conversation about circumcision and eating and all of those kind of things, and so what Paul's starting to put his finger on is that the Jewish Christians in Galatia, they've simply forgotten who they are. They've forgotten. They've forgotten that they are in Christ and Christ is in them. And as a result, they're going back to old ways of identifying themselves and old ways of living that out. I said, oh, this is what's going on. You've just completely forgotten who you are. And so you're going back to an old way that rather than living as if Jesus is the most important thing about you, you're living as if the most important thing about you is your ethnicity, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. They haven't ceased to be Jewish. They haven't ceased to be Gentile. They are still very much those things. But what Paul is saying is that those are no longer the ultimate things. Those are no longer the determinative things. That that identity doesn't determine how you live, but you're living like it does. And we know this. We know exactly what that story is. Because we know just how easy it is for us to forget. We're like, oh yeah, I'm not all that different than them. In fact, I'm in the same place. It's so easy to forget Christ lives in us. 
It's so easy for us to go back to other ways of thinking about ourselves, other ways of believing about ourselves, other ways of then living that out. It's so easy to have other things kind of come along the way and say, well, I'm going to try that on and maybe live that way for a bit to try to figure all of those things out. It's so easy for us to live as if something other than Christ in us is the most important thing about us. It's just so easy. What is that for you? What's the thing that you believe about yourself that you believe is more important than the fact that Christ has taken up residence in you? What is that thing? Or some, it might be, actually, I really think that the most important thing about me is how people perceive me. That this is really the most important thing. That's determining my identity is what everybody else is saying. And so I'm trying to manage my look or my image or my reputation. And I'm just trying to figure all of that out because what matters most is what everybody else says. Or maybe it's like, no, actually what matters most is my net worth. Like that's, that's something I can measure and I can track. So everything that I'm doing, all that I'm doing in my life is about managing that number and trying to make that number go higher and higher and higher because I'm somehow connected to that. Maybe for some you're like, you know what, the thing I believe is that, that I, am, I am just this. I am just. How do you fill that in? When you're in conversations with friends and family and you say, I am just a how do you fill that in? Paul says you're not just anything. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. It's not a just anything. For some of us, we're like, the most important thing is my family of origin. But this is just who I am. I'm a Jackson. I'll always be a Jackson. And that's just always going to be the thing that just hangs on me. Just who I am. For others, it's words that other people have spoken over you. Maybe it's things that a parent said, things that a schoolyard bully said, things that your first love said, things that a boss that you were really trying to impress said. And you're living that out over and over and over and over again. For some of us, it's the things that we've done. You're like, that's all really nice to say this whole like in Christ and Christ in me, like, yeah, 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 that's nice, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what my life used to look like. For others, it's like, no, it's, it's not so much the things that, I, that I've done. It's the things that I haven't done. And we keep living out of those kinds of things. And actually living in such a way as if that's the most important thing about us. And Paul wants to remind us and remind the church, no, no, no. The most important thing about you is that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You are in Christ, so these are your people. And Christ is in you and that is your identity. This summer I was reading, a, or earlier this year, I was reading uh, a series of books called The Wingfeather Saga. Anybody read The Wingfeather Saga? It's a kid's book uh, written by a guy named Andrew Peterson. I was reading it with my middle daughter. And one of the things that comes up over and over and over there in the midst of those books is this question of identity. And there are these kids that actually were royalty, I'm not going to spoil a lot of it, but didn't know it. And one of the things that comes up in the middle of it is one of them is thinking about the life that's ahead of him. Andrew Peterson writes this. He says that the character is thinking, was it worth losing this old life in order to learn the truth of who he was and who he was becoming? 
Is it worth losing this old life in order to learn the truth of who we are and who we are becoming? Paul says, lose that old life and learn the truth of who you are and who you are becoming. That is so much of what the journey of discipleship is. It's stripping off those other identities or realizing that those are not the primary things about us. But the most important thing about us is that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And what we're called to do as follower of Jesus, what we're called to remember is that Jesus' life is now in us. And what living for God looks like is letting the life of God reside in us and flourish in us. That we might actually come to know who we are and then we might actually become more like Christ. This is where that gospel reading comes in. That apart from him, we can actually do nothing. So we abide in Christ and he abides in us. In the midst of that, we find ourselves becoming who we were always meant to be. This is the invitation of that passage. He goes on and he says this. He says, I don't ignore the grace of God because if we become righteous, if we become part of God's people through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul says, this stuff, all that we've been talking about, this is actually why Christ died. Yes, he died to rescue us from sin and death. Yes, he rescued us from something, but he also rescued us for something. He died so that we can live for God with new identity and new community. He died that we might actually understand what it means for the Holy Spirit of God to take up residence in us, to transform us from the inside out, and that we might know what it means to be a part of the family, the people of God. He died not just for what is going to happen on this side of eternity, but also for what is happening here and now. That we may be part of the people that are around us, and then we might have a new power inside of us, a new story that we get to live out so that our lives might actually witness to the world that's coming. That in who we are and how we live and who we live with and how we live with each other might actually put on display the world that is coming in Christ.